The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. My poems are certainly not not uh, strictly autobiographical any more than my short stories are, but uh, short stories and poems, for that matter, don't just come out of thin air. They have to come from from, from somewhere, some some grounding in uh, in the real world, some points of reference. But uh, after all, uh, writing is um, partly a revealing of the of our secrets, our, our common secrets. So I'm not afraid to deal with. Um, Unpleasant or scandalous uh, things in my in my poems or in my stories. I can't feel that uh, I'm shoving people down the river or anything of that sort in my poems or in my stories. Even though I may be, I but I I hope I'm not. But uh, whereas I may be self-conscious in everyday life, even shy as it were, um, I'm not when it comes to writing. That's author Raymond Carver talking about his short stories. How did this working-class figure from the remote Pacific Northwest come to be called America's Chekhov? What do we talk about when we talk about Raymond Carver's short stories? Mike Palindrome joins us today for a discussion of Raymond Carver on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope you had a good time for the holidays. I'm Jack Wilson, and I'm looking forward to getting back in the action. Podcasting action, that is. And then, as usual, just when things are going well, I hit a snag. I came back from vacation refreshed and rejuvenated. I had a great trip to Chicago, a city I have always loved, and one I need to spend more time in, frankly. What a great city. So, New York, Wisconsin, Chicago, back to D.C., which, why don't we just rename D.C. Crazy Town? By God, it used to be so dull in D.C. That was its reputation. The boring Hollywood. The nerd Hollywood. Dork. Dork politician Hollywood. Now it's like someone has spiked the drinking water with LSD. We're in the... Technicolor dream, the Technicolor nightmare phase of D.C., the electric Kool-Aid acid bath, acid bomb, I don't know. Anyway, I came back rejuvenated and ready to go, eager to podcast, and I was hit with the realities of domestic life, the commute, the job. And then just as I was getting back on top of things, I encountered a flood. Our garbage disposal had sprung a leak. So, after cleaning out that mess, I had to do all the research and make decisions like, do you need three quarters horsepower or one horsepower? Is horsepower really an adequate measure for this task? A garbage disposal that has one horsepower? Literally, the power of a horse. Except you can't put chicken bones in it or Orange peels or eggshells. Are you kidding me? Imagine if you gave a horse an eggshell. A horse with stainless steel teeth. Do you think that horse couldn't tear apart an orange peel with stainless steel? Have you seen a horse's jaws? 
Or if it was walking around, that's just the horse's mouth. What about the horse's body? If you put stainless steel hooves on a horse and gave it an eggshell to walk over, do you think that eggshell would last? So, we go into the store. We have to go to Lowe's because Home Depot did not have enough selection. I buy the garbage disposal and I decide to see what they'll charge me to install it because I'm a busy guy. I have podcasting to do. And although I actually <laughs> I had called my brother-in-law, who is a handyman, to see if I should install it myself or pay someone to do it. He's a handyman. And he says, oh, yeah, when I did that, I guess it probably took me about an hour. And I had him on speakerphone. My wife was in the other room and I heard her shriek with laughter <laughs> knowing that for me it would probably take at least one day or possibly two days i would need to run to home depot three or four different times i'd be watching videos i would get it done but only after a lot of effort so i'm in lowe's asking about the installation and the guy is very nice Older guy, but he hasn't worked in the area for very long. That's what he said. I haven't been in this area for a while. And he keeps forgetting his own password, which he has to pull out of his wallet over and over. And he's entering things into the screen to get the estimate. He's supposed to enter the number of installations. And instead, he's confused, and he enters the serial number for the disposal. And I... I see this happen, and I don't know why I didn't say anything. I just didn't. I wanted to let him do his job, I guess. Or maybe I'm used to being wrong on stuff like that. You know, the guy who always tries to point things out is usually the guy who's wrong. Looking over his shoulder. Who wants a know-it-all looking over your shoulder? And then you have to say, actually, I have to enter the serial number here. That's how this works. I work here. I know that. So instead of quantity of installations, he enters the serial number. Instead of a one, he enters the serial number. And we go through a million more screens where it's asking, does the person live within 20 miles of the lows, etc., etc. Somehow my kid who's there cuts his finger during all of this. He's got a paper towel. He sneaks off to the bathroom and comes back with a paper towel trying to stay out of the way. We get to the end, and of course, the installation estimate is way too high. Cost of the unit is correct, but the cost of the installation, because we've entered thousands and thousands of disposals to install, is way too high. So this gentleman, my helper, points at the screen, and he says, yeah, this part looks pretty good. The cost is right, but I have some questions about this part down here with the installation, I'll, I'll need to get someone to ask. And I say, yeah, that's probably more than I would pay. And then the guy says, you'd pay twice as much for installation if you go outside the Lowe's network. <laughs> I say, really? Because it says it's going to cost $70 million. And then he... Nodded. Yeah. Probably not twice as much, all things considered. 
Anyway, I'm glad to be back. Glad to have Mike here today. We've both been fans of Carver for years, Raymond Carver. In my case, a little longer, as it turns out. I've been reading him for 20 or 25 years or so. He's a brilliant short story writer. His poems are not bad. Maybe not quite as good as the short stories. I would save the poems until you get through all of Raymond Carver, get immersed in them, then turn to the poems. Funny thing about Carver is I don't think he's innovative in any way. I would challenge anyone to tell me a single technical, formal advancement. Anything Carver did that couldn't be found in, say, Chekhov. He applied those techniques to a different set of characters, to a world, the world that he knew. That's a good lesson for writers. You don't need to invent the new. You don't need to invent a new style. Just applying all the old tricks to the people around you, the things you care about, will make it new. As wonderful as Carver is, and as recent, he's already a bit dated. There's no internet, there's no cell phones, no online dating. He captures a particular era, but that doesn't mean that he closes the door on fiction. There's still good fiction out there to be written and for us to read. So, how's he so good if he was basically just repeating Chekhov? Why can't others be as good as Carver? Why can't anyone? Well, for one thing, he was fantastically devoted to his fiction. Every word counts. That doesn't mean he's full of wordplay. He even uses cliches now and then. Some slang and idioms that don't really hold up. He's not James Joyce writing the Dubliners, chiseling beautiful sentence after beautiful sentence. But the words count, they matter, they mean something, and they believe in themselves. That's what's great about Carver. He believes in fiction. The stories believe in their own power. He's like a monk with a monk's devotion to craft and the ability of a job well done to fulfill its purpose. And the job well done is a finely written story, and the purpose is to convey something meaningful about the human condition. That might be joy, it might be fear, it might be anxiety, it might be anger, it might be love. But it's accepting the mystery and addressing it through the poor tools of the fiction writer's trade, the lonely word-by-word -word construction, a working man's effort, Brick by brick by brick, word by word by word. And somehow, at the end, you get something created out of nothing. An edifice, a miracle. Carver was born in Oregon in 1938 and died in Washington State in 1988. He was the son of a sawmill worker. He got married a year out of high school, struggled, Finally went to college for a bit and started writing fiction. Through his stories, he became more and more famous eventually, and the struggles finally alleviated somewhat, though not after years of struggle with poverty and alcoholism and broken marriage and failed promises and periods of profound hopelessness, economic anxiety. In the end, he left behind five or six collections of short stories, five or six collections of poetry, 
and an incalculable influence on American literature in the 1970s and especially the 1980s and 90s. He died of lung cancer at the age of 50. His tombstone bears the following inscription. Late Fragment And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. Raymond Carver, coming up on... Oh, wait, I forgot. We have a special guest who's going to visit us. A guest straight out of the pages of Melville. That's probably him now. Yes? Hello? Ah. Hello. I'm Elizabeth Bennett. Wait. Star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Lizzie. Here to deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting... Oh, Lizzie. Huzzah to us. Huzzah. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Yes. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one. That so nice Darcy fellow. and I can catch some Zeds. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Oh, that's nice. I'm glad to hear from Lizzie Bennett star of the novel Pride and Prejudice, but I was expecting somebody else. What happened, Gar? New Year? I thought that having a new character might be a good way to start the new year. New beginnings? Ah, I see. He's he's rocking a baby in his arms. That's true. New baby for the new year. Well, that's right, people. Ms. Bennett and Mr. Darcy are expecting a baby. And we need to help them secure their child care so they can catch up on their Zeds. How does one do that? Well, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash literature. We dedicate 100% of the money to imaginary child care for fictional characters. Just kidding. We use that money to pay for our server space, our podcast hosting space, the website, all the other costs of putting together this podcast, our staff, our researchers... So please do support the show with a small monthly contribution. If you'd rather make a one-time donation, head on over to historyofliterature.com slash shop and buy me a virtual coffee. My thanks to all the Patreons who have signed up so far. We had many coming over the holidays, which I'll talk about next time. And we also have many people taking advantage of the virtual coffee approach. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. Product <laughs> means of connecting with me and with all the people who help make this show possible. So, Raymond Carver with Mike Palindrome after this. Hey. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Mike, president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast and Happy New Year. Thanks, Jack. Same to you. So we tried this before with Raymond Carver, and we ran into a technical glitch. Uh, so we're going to re-record this episode. And since then, a lot has happened. We've gone through the holidays, and you and I actually met in New York City. Uh, what was that place that you took me to? The 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 timekeeper or something? The watch? What was the oh, name of that the, bar? The wheel. The wheel tapper. The wheel tapper. So that's Which sort of the your... bar of the Fitzgerald Hotel. Ah, so that's sort of your your local hangout, I guess. Yeah, that bar. I think the bartender recognized me, <laughs> I right? Noticed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he might have just poured me of my 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 usual Smithix, finest Smithix. That's right. Yeah. I think I had a black and tan. That was a pretty fun night. And at the end of it all, you rode off into the night on your bicycle. I did. I've been biking, <laughs> you know, in the, it, I won't bike when it's under, when it's um, below zero with wind chill. Mm. If it's below zero without wind chill, I'll bike. Mm. Yeah. So. so people probably don't know this about you, but you actually got a speeding ticket on your bicycle. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I I was wearing um, an English tweed suit. In um, the spring, which I was kind of pushing it with the tweed, it was a little warm. So, I was so you think there was a the a policeman with a strong fashion sense? He was I outraged. Think, I think I really stood out because I was I was wearing a helmet and a suit in yeah. Midtown and sunglasses. And your helmet is kind of like a it's kind of a crash helmet. Sort of, a, yeah. it's black. It's got stickers on it, right? Yeah. I, whenever I go someplace, and it, it, well, especially in Europe, every, every city has its own crest. So I'll buy a crest sticker. <laughs> so I have a Baden-Baden sticker on my helmet, and I'm already starting to think you deserved that ticket, even though I don't know how fast you were going. <laughs> <laughs> so I did my usual thing, which is I go up to the, I go up to slow down at the light even though it's red and if there's I let the pedestrians cross and then I swerve I'm always careful to swerve around them because mm -hmm. I feel like if you swerve in front of them that scares them mm -hmm. so I swerve around them and I went through one red light and then a second and then I hear the siren 
And, um, you know, a friend of mine said, why don't you just bike the wrong way? Because the police couldn't find you. Yeah. Follow you. I don't know if we mentioned this. This was in Manhattan, yeah. right? The Upper yeah. West Side, was it? Uh, in Midtown. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I said, you know, I'm a grown-up. I'm not going to flee the police. <laughs> I'm not... I'm not going to speed down the wrong way to escape the police. I mean, I'm not. So I just pulled over and the cop asked me a rhetorical question. Did you know that you went through two red lights? And I actually came up Mm. with a quick excuse. I said, it was just turning green. And the cop said, no, it wasn't. Mm. And said he could write me two tickets, but he was only going to write one. Mm. And the ticket turned out to be the same price for if you were in a car running a red in Manhattan, which is $290. Ah, boy. Yeah. So it wasn't actually a speeding ticket. It was a, a traffic violation. Yeah, running a red light. Got it. Huh. You know, when you talk about fleeing the police, it reminds me of this story of these guys I knew in high school, and they went out in the middle of the country in one of those dark country roads, and they pulled the car over to the side, and they were drinking. And a police officer came up behind them, obviously saw the car was parked in a suspicious spot or maybe just wondering if they had some car trouble or something. So next thing you know, the police officer is shining his light in the car and a couple of the guys jumped out of the car and said, guys, we got to take off, you know, and they they ran down the middle of this road, the middle of the (laughs) night in the dark. Then the police officer said to the two guys who were left, hey, boys, you know, what's going on? How old are you? Et cetera, et cetera. And it became clear to the guys who had stayed in the car that the police officers weren't going after the guys who had run and were now hiding in the trees or something on the side of the road. And so they said, well, you know, we kind of thought things would be worse for those guys who took off. What what are you doing about those guys? You know, didn't you see them run away from the car? And the police officer said, we ain't track stars. (laughs) 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 So then they got their revenge because they told the guy, they waved the guys to come back. You know, they said, guys, it's okay. You can come back now. (laughs) You know, they're just giving us a warning. You can come back. And the guys came back out and, uh, that's when they got their ticket. So Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I like that. We ain't track stars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then you had your holidays. Did you get any books for the holidays? I did. I got uh, the the Now Scarred um, mm. new book, Autumn, which is he, he did a, a writing exercise every day. He, he spent the morning for a couple hours writing about an object, ah. either either in his house or one that meant something to him. And so he did one, one a day and got had 365 objects, and he culled, he went through them and culled um, a number of them for, to fill up four books, mm. um, autumn, winter, spring, and summer, and they're releasing them. Um, over the course of a year. So Hmm. I I got Autumn. So did someone in your life know that this would be a good gift for you or did you request it? I I, I kind of said I was going to buy it and my daughter and (laughs) my wife were like, we'll we'll buy it for you. No, we'll wrap it up and put it under the tree. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. So this isn't part of his series? 
No, it's yeah, not my part struggle. of my struggle. No, it's uh, it, it's his follow up, mm. which is it's interesting because each each piece is is only a couple pages long, so it's kind of like the anti Navsgard. Mm. Right. It's very short little pieces. Like I just read a a, a bit on um, apples and how when he was a kid he used to try to. He used to eat the entire apple, including the core and the seeds. <laughs> so now that's uh, now scared. That would be a good episode for this year for us to put on our list. Another one. We are getting a ton of emails about the Magic Mountain. So this really? might be the yeah. This might be the year where we have to do an episode on that. And a lot of people, I would say, the general tenor of the emails uh-huh. is a little bit confused. Uh, they want to hear what it is that draws you to this book so strongly because a lot of people are giving it a try, I -hmm. think, based on your recommendation, and then they either can't finish it or they finish it and and wonder why they didn't get out of it what you got out of it, or they seem to want to hear your thoughts on that. So, I mean, I'll say one thing, which is um, Thomas Mann... Um, recommended that everybody read his book, read read that book twice because it was a symphony, <laughs> and no one no one li- listens to a symphony, you know, but once. Yeah. Okay. Well, that. But that yeah. Can... <laughs> but yeah, we should do the episode. I'm I'm actually reading it in French, so I'm getting something else out of it because I'm I'm you know struck by certain things I had not noticed before having read it in English so many times. Yeah. And speaking of French, as we get into uh, Carver here, I don't know if you ever heard the story, but I had heard that Carver had a French translator who translated Mm -hmm. all of his stories and then uh, saw the cover of the book, like the preview, I guess, that the, of the edition that was going to come out. And he saw Carver's picture on it. And he uh-huh. said, I need to retranslate these stories. And wow. he realized that the person who was on the cover was, had to have been a lot more sincere and a lot more earnest than what he was, than the, the voice that he was putting into the translations before that. I think he was kind of smirking at the characters or poking fun at some of the class issues or some of the... the hmm the the hard luck um you know the the woes of the characters and he said that he had to he had to redo them because the man in that with that face he realized wow. immediately couldn't have couldn't have had that voice that he had first given him which is i don't know if that's true it's a very interesting idea and it would certainly if that is true, it, it, certainly the translator made a good decision because in English, I don't think you can read them in, in any other way as being very sincere and earnest. Well, that's um, that's a level of like int- intuitiveness and empathy that I don't I, I've never really felt toward a, an author photograph. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it is, I mean, I've got uh, where I'm calling from, and it's true that the, the picture on the cover of that paperback is very striking. Mm-hmm. His eyes are kind of illuminated, and he has a, an unusual pose with his shoulders and his arms, and 
He's mm. it's very haunting. I don't know if that was the picture that the translator was looking at, but certainly one that I find very powerful. I guess it makes me think of whether there's an instance where a translator was a good friend of the writer and had um, let the things they knew about that writer influence the translation. Because if I think of like a good friend and if I could speak uh, and read French fluently enough and try to translate them, whether it would, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, take more liberties. Yeah. Yeah. Or you wonder if it would just open you up and give you more, freedom because you'd think oh i yeah. know i know the kind of thing he would like he wouldn't mind if i did this or yeah um, that's interesting okay wow. so i i developed a set of uh questions sort of 10 questions plus a catch-all question at the end are you ready we're going to call it the raymond carver challenge you ready to take the challenge sure okay so the first question is uh, just a description of who and where you were when you first encountered Carver. How old you were, where were you in life, and what was your mm-hmm. first reaction? So I I encountered him fairly late, uh, especially for someone who had writing aspirations. I was almost 30. Mm. Um, it was I was in an MFA program, and everybody was raving about him, and I felt kind of humble not having read him. Um, yeah. I, I I think I had tried him, but just found his um, his writing to be almost a little boring. Yeah. Um, Did you were you swept up in the? Uh, it didn't hit you at all when Shortcuts came out. I think that came out in ninety one or ninety three, yeah, maybe. It's that... funny because I I watched that movie and I liked it, but. I think it was also just because I was I was probably more pretentious when it came to film than books. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Altman gave you a gave it that stamp of approval that you could get into yeah. the film. Yeah, I think I was influenced by yeah something like that when it came to film. But with books, I, I tended to just you know go with my gut feeling. And so when I but when I did read him in my thirties. I, I couldn't, and I only read a couple of stories. I couldn't believe how good they were. Mm, yeah, um, and I, I actually started to love the fact that almost everything happens indoors, and mm. you know, they're like unemployment or money problems or babysitting problems. And I, I love the insularity. Probably the same things that I didn't like when I tried it when I was twenty-two. Mm, interesting, because. The flip side of it is you could say he's claustrophobic, that he he's uh, only does miniature, he doesn't take on big, sweeping social problems, or, you know, there's no big city mayors in the books, there's no, there's yeah. no real social strata, there's not, it's not Philip Roth, it's not Saul Bellow, it's not Tolstoy, it's not, it's not that kind, he's not that kind of a writer, but it seems like you were drawn to uh, the you know, the the flip side of that, which is he's focused on something and doing it really, really well, like a Chekhov or another uh, short story writer who sticks to a, a set of characters, a, a kind of a world, and then inhabits it over and over. Yeah, and he, he might have been the first real short story writer I took seriously. I think I had this bias against short stories in mm-hmm. my 20s. Mm-hmm. 
I felt like they were doing things, you know, they kind of went halfway. That Mm. was my feeling whenever I read a short story. Just when you got into it, it would be over. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reading uh, Margot Livesey's book, uh, The Hidden Machinery, her book of essays. That was one of the things I got for Christmas. And uh, she's, of course, a... A great guest on the show. We're hoping to have her back uh, this year. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm full of all these plans. Um, and she talks about the questions. You know that so much of fiction is about, as a fiction writer, is about putting a question in the reader's mind. You know, wh- who is this person who just arrived on on yeah. the page or in the town, or or who you know will. Uh, will this character get what she wants? And it's that kind of thing that moves you from sentence to sentence and page to page. And she talks about the difference in writing short stories where you might have a question that sustains the short story and then writing a longer piece or a novel where you you have minor questions or smaller questions that take you from page to page. But then you also have these bigger underlying questions that will carry you through an entire novel and that the reader is maybe not even aware that that's the question that's being answered as they're going from smaller question and answer to smaller question and answer. And it it, it is true that when you're, it is a difference, you know, you could look at short stories and say, well, it's, it's giving me the question or its answer is addressing something. It's, it's a theme that resonates. It's a page turner, but it doesn't have the same deeper question that, that a Henry James novel might have, for example. Yeah, I guess, you know, to the, to that point, I I start to really appreciate the contrast of what a short story can offer, Mm -hmm. um, where the dialogue and it's especially to with Carver, the dialogue, you know, because it's such a short work means so much. Mm. And, um, his dialogue is just, it's so good. And I I was reading in an interview where he said that, um, he acknowledged that the dialogue of his story in his stories is not how real people talk. Yeah. He said that, um, uh, I have a good year for dialogue and so forth. I, I certainly don't think people talk the way I write. It's like Hemingway. It's also said that he had a good ear, but he invented all his dialogue. People don't talk that way at all. It's a question of rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's it's got a rhythm to it, a musicality, and it also has a mystery, you know, and it, it almost, we're getting, uh, we're covering a lot of ground here, but there's this big controversy with his editor, Gordon Lish, and the amount that Gordon Lish would hack away at the prose. Yeah. And, but he would leave the stories that were left behind. It is almost like a, a sculptor who took away a lot of stuff that didn't need to be there. And what, what you're left with is very stark and very beautiful. And what it did for Carver's stories is it gave a lot of the lines a kind of ambiguity. They're not over-explained. And yeah. they, they have a sort of suspense because it almost can give it a kind of menacing tone to it when you don't know exactly why something happens but it's a little bit out of the blue a little shocking and uh there's a sense of you don't know exactly where things are going to go next and i think a lot of that is just from 
editing down to um, really go for that kind of stripped down effect. Yeah, no, it's 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 so effective the way he does it. I mean, that that's the other thing that appealed to me as I was writing, um, working on my own fiction was trying to figure out how he did it. Yeah, and and just realizing that it's actually much harder to. Uh, work within his style because it's it's so efficient. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So uh, my second question for you was to describe Carver's work in a sentence. So my sentence is, Carver's short stories wake me up from my state of privilege, my so-called problems <laughs> and hardships, my whininess. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. So I'm interested in you as a a lifelong resident of Manhattan who's uh, living in a completely different world from the kind of world that Raymond Carver is. And I had a different experience. I felt like I had grown up with with all these people in my rural Wisconsin life. And in fact, I, I would often catch myself Reminding, having to remind myself that he was actually on the West Coast in Washington State for most of these, because they seemed so close to home from the the small town where I grew up, where the people are living in these sort of paycheck to paycheck existence. And I'm curious if you felt like it resonated with you that you could imagine these scenarios of these characters, because people who are struggling can be struggling whether they're in a city or in the country or did you imagine the the truck drivers you knew or you know anybody that you would see in new york who wasn't exactly uh wealthy you know you could imagine those characters and their inner lives or how did you connect with the people in carver's stories i mean i i guess i i kind of hate the idea of schools of philosophy where there's this there's this um, authenticity of of suffering or authenticity of you know of being serene and you know aesthetic ascetic, mm-hmm. but I, I do while I'm skeptical of that I do acknowledge that you know materialism makes people really really lack perspective. Mm. And I think that's what I got from Carver, what I've gotten from Carver stories is that, you know, there is pleasure that you can get almost every day. And it's kind of lost when you're surrounded by so, so much, so many possessions and Mm. materialism. Mm. So, So, so you could imagine you're looking around you in, in Manhattan and thinking if if we could make this a simpler life within this this sort of crazy 24-hour city if yeah. we could if we could just be you know managing an apartment complex somewhere in the middle of nowhere and and having a lot of time on our hands and that kind of thing you could put yourself in that mentality yeah i mean i have a friend who accuses me of always bringing up david foster wallace in every conversation i have with her <laughs> But I, I will bring up David Foster Wallace here because th- I think there are moments in Infinite Jest where, y- you know, you, you're just suddenly struck by the pleasure you could get from like hiding in a tree and mm. spying on somebody. Yeah, I think right. 
he just captures these little pleasures where if you're in an interview and the, the interviewer is a dick, but you have nothing to lose, there mm. can be such pleasure just being, you know, um, highly inappropriate. Right. And so he has these moments where people just, he kind of wakes you up from what you expect. Okay, this is an interview scene. Like everyone's going to play the certain role. Yeah. And he just wakes you up. I, I, I just think Carver is so good at that. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I guess, now that you mention it, the the actual setting doesn't really matter so much when if at the heart of Carver's stories are uh, a couple, you know, a couple trying to make it or a guy trying to deal with his boss or being uncertain about his role at his job or his role as a parent or something like that. Those are really universal situations. And I, you know, reading about Carver's life, I mean, he got married to his girlfriend who he impregnated when she was 17. Mm. And they struggled to uh, start to make a living. And he was writing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually had to declare personal bankruptcy. Mm. Yeah. So those early years uh, before he started taking classes and got to know forget the writer he got to know at Humboldt University. Um, uh, John Gardner? John Gardner, right. So before Gardner, you know, really started lavishing him with compliments and helping him along, I mean, he had a really tough period from like 18 to 25. Yeah. And his father, I think, had struggled with alcohol and he himself had sort of inherited that and it was just a, a tough life. I, there's a quote, I'll probably play it, uh, maybe I'll play it now if I haven't played it yet, but it's about Carver talking about how he and his first wife just believed that if they did everything right and worked very hard, that things mm-hmm. would work out. And they had this perpetual optimism until month after month that didn't happen and they would do everything they were supposed to and they would work very hard and they would still be short of money at the end of the month. And they still just Mm. could never quite dig themselves out of their circumstances. And so he said eventually it just took its toll and wore them down. And it it seems like that dilemma is kind of at the heart of so many of his stories, is just kind of beaten down of somebody who's, who's doing the best that they can and yeah. finding that it's just slightly not enough. We had a lot of hope and idealism and a lot of strength, and we thought that the, if we worked hard and did the right things, the right things would happen. Things would work out. Uh, well, as it, as it turned out, uh, we, we did the best we could, and we worked as hard as we possibly could, and things did not turn out. We were, there was never enough money to go around at the end of the month. And uh, finally, that kind of um, effort uh, began to wear us down. Every time I read him, I I just think of, I feel like I start to think of like thousands of people who are living their lives quietly and just Mm -hmm. trying to find uh, their way in the world. I mean, it's just, it's so different from reading about, I mean, I love Evelyn Waugh, but 
sometimes when I read his fiction, I just think like, oh my God, this is, they might as well be from outer space. Yeah. You know, <laughs> this, this level of money and this level of, right. You know, of, of, of privilege. I mean, yeah. they are. <laughs> and wrestling with the kinds of the vicissitudes of the highly privileged or the, of the class structure, navigating the class structure at the upper echelons of society is, uh, a little bit hard to identify with. Yeah, definitely. So yet though, even though a lot of these are people in kind of a bleak situation, it does, they seem to be also uplifting and there seems to be a kind of grace in a lot of these stories. I think if they were purely bleak, it would be, uh, I'm sure he could still be popular, but maybe he'd be a little less popular. I wouldn't call these Hollywood endings or happy endings necessarily, mm -hmm. but there seems to be some redemption in a lot of these stories as well. Yeah, it's almost, uh, I, it, it's like the, the 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 build up is 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 sort of slow slash repetitive and circular and then when the ending comes um yeah it can be very uplifting or quasi religious mhm mm and it can yeah. it can also be a a reminder to focus on some of the simpler things or a small good thing to take the name of one of the short stories but that even in spite of maybe a, a struggle with trying to to make the next mortgage payment or something or the next rent check, uh, you may also have a spouse that you can really count on and the two of you can brave the storm together. And that might be more than most people have. And that might be enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I almost think his his writing would be really useful to hand out and you know, AA meetings or mm. those yeah. kind of meetings. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them are set there. I mean, where I'm calling from is, is one of them, but let's talk about your favorite stories. That was number three on my list was to, to, yeah. to pick five stories you would take to a desert Island. So I, I just picked three so that the readers out there would, you know, really, make good and read these three one a day for three days. <laughs> okay. So, you're, you're like uh, a, you're like an easy teacher giving out homework that, uh, <laughs> you, you want it to be something they actually do rather than too aspirational. So the first is, so the first two are his favorites. I was reading that his favorites were cathedral and mm. a small good thing. Oh yeah. Okay. And, um, Cathedral. He he actually said in an interview I read that um, that the story changed his life. That wow, yeah. That um, yeah. How many times do you hear a writer say that? <laughs> that a story that you write, not just a yeah, story yeah. that you read, but a story that you write, changes your life. Yeah, he said that he he realized when he wrote it that there was something he wanted to do with his stories that he had never wanted to do before. He wanted to try to end his stories on a, on like a truly positive note. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the story, it, it's one of the, you know, stories that I turn to whenever someone asks for a recommendation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I try to reread it every year. Um, but the, without giving too much away, it's, there's this couple 
and they're they're not very ideal for each other. And the wife had befriended a blind man, had worked for a blind man many years ago, reading to him. Mm-hmm. And after they had, she had moved away from him, and the blind man had married, they had stayed in touch and sent each other tapes, a la the TV show Felicity, where Felicity and <laughs> <laughs> her friends one of your favorites cassette tapes <laughs> um and decades pass and uh the wife um the the blind man is passing through town because his wife has now died and he decides to visit this woman who is now married to the husband and the husband is actually the the narrator of the story mm-hmm. um and it, it is both like the fun, his funniest story and his, you know his most philosophical of stories. Mm-hmm. I, I just love the way, and it's probably like the most postmodern of his stories. He talks to the reader all the time. He says, you know, he says stuff like, you know, his being blind bothered me. I just love that how yeah. unsympathetic the main character is. My idea of blindness came from the movies. In the movies, the blind moved slowly and never laughed. Sometimes they were led by seeing eye dogs, seeing eye dogs. A blind man in my house was not something I looked forward to. Yeah. <laughs> and you you kind of, the narrator in the story, it's so, you're not sure exactly what to think. Because on the one hand, he's kind of charismatic. And he's kind of saying things that probably a lot of people feel. And he's you can kind of appreciate his honesty. But on the yeah. other hand his wife is coming across as so much more mature and (laughs) so much more reasonable and reliable. And there are times where you just think, how can she, like, she's going to leave this guy. How could she possibly be with this guy who is so hung up on the idea of a blind man? And she's so, uh, beyond that and is so, um, her, her basic attitude is, Oh man, if you can't if you can't grow up a little bit and just realize that if you can't put yourself in the blind man's shoes a little bit like I can and just treat him like a normal person, then uh I don't know I don't know if there's any hope for you. Yeah, I I agree. This is there's a scene where he and in I don't want to give away the ending, but in the beginning he and his wife are talking about the blind man coming and he says, yeah, he's, 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 you know, kind of annoying. And he says, maybe I could take him bowling. I said to my wife, she was at the draining board doing scalloped potatoes. She put down the knife she was using and turned around. If you love me, she said, you can do this for me. If you don't love me, okay. But if you had a friend, my, any friend and the friend came to visit, I'd make him feel comfortable. She wiped her hands on the dish towel. I don't have any blind friends, I said. You don't have any friends, she said, period. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that that line. I don't have any blind friends. He's he's trying to protest. Like, how could I? I would never make you do something like this. I don't have any blind friends. And then she comes back with, you don't have any friends. That's perfect. Uh, And yeah, just his... His whole discomfort, it becomes very comical, and it perfectly sets up what happens, which is he's got to spend some time with the guy. And I don't I don't want to spoil more than that, but it is something that everybody should read. And I heard, I think it was Tobias Wolf had yeah. said, 
uh, that the experience of reading Cathedral at the end made mm-hmm. him feel like he was physically floating as he was reading it, which I wow. thought was just beautiful. And not many stories mm-hmm. you would say that about, but Cathedral definitely has that kind of uh, potential impact on the reader. So if anybody yeah. hasn't read it or if they haven't read it in a while, that is uh, a good one to seek out. Yeah, you should. I think all of his stories can be read in one sitting. Yeah, so definitely. So, with a small good thing, and again, I don't want to give away that ending, but um, it 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 has a great setup, and I I think we'll probably touch on this later. But I think Carver does the setup so well. Mm-hmm. It's a guy. Um, it's either a guy or a couple, yeah. really in a situation. Yeah. Oh, it's such a, you know, and he, he, he doesn't waste, it's very cinematic. He doesn't waste any movement. Um, and so I wanted to read a little bit from, so a small good thing, the setup is two parents, though, the have a young child and the young child's birthday is coming up and the mother goes to a bakery to order a custom cake with like a spaceship on it or a football on it for her son. And the baker is not a nice friendly guy and that's the setup Mm -hmm. and the kid is walking down the street and hit by a car and goes into a coma and then the parents come to the hospital and they're kind of waiting while the kid's in the coma and there's a description like in so many of his stories where people are moving about this, this is the description Howard sat in the hospital waiting room Howard sat in the chair next to her chair, the wife's chair. They looked at each other. He wanted to say something else and reassure her, but he was afraid to. He took her hand and put it in his lap, and this made him feel better, her hand being there. He picked up her hand and squeezed it. Then he just held her hand. They sat like that for a while, watching the boy and not talking. From time to time, he squeezed her hand. Finally, she took her hand away. So there there there's the movement is i mean it's like a it's like a movie it's like a it's like theater you can just see it as it's unfolding yeah and you know i just watched this interview with robert altman where he was talking about the movie shortcuts yeah which was based on eight raymond carver stories and a poem a raymond carver poem and he had, the interviewer said something like you seem to be asking you seem to be observing these people without judging them and Mm. robert altman said yes because that's what carver does you know that that's that carver doesn't judge them either and then the person said do you think that's what cinema should do and he said i think that's what this movie should do you know that 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 was the point of making this movie was to try to capture kind of the cinematic qualities of Carver of just watching people's gestures, watching their dialogue, seeing them react to things, not necessarily digging really deep internally. These aren't introspective characters necessarily. There's a bit of introspection, but not like a, you know, this, this isn't Herzog or somebody. And, but just watching the, the really small movements that, express a kind of humanity and a kind of 
emotional response to a situation. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it, it, it's it's breathtaking when he he goes into that mode because then you know the dialogue is such a like it's like oxygen suddenly you know. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like coming up for air. Yeah, I mean it's, <laughs> and he's so imitated, but mm-hmm. you 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 read it and you just feel like it's not there's no substance behind it. It often feels kind of gimmicky when somebody yeah. does when some when somebody who's not Carver writes like Carver. It feels a little bit mannered, like they've adopted a kind of um, effect. Yeah. So what is your third story? It was probably my favorite babysitting story of all time, Fever. Oh, yeah. That was on my list, too. Which has a great ending, too. Um, (laughs) And it also has a great, like, he has such great details. Like, the... So the the setup is this guy's married, he has two kids, and his wife decides to seek out Eastern mysticism and abandons the family and moves to New Mexico. Hmm. And so the guy has to suddenly find babysitting. Right. Um, and he, he he finally gets ends up with an elderly woman who's married and her husband drives her to the house each day and sits in his truck and drinks coffee out of a thermos and <laughs> right and she's like he'll be okay like i can't remember his last name but he she calls him mr by his last yeah. name every once in a while he'll he'll crouch down in the truck and and then the truck will start up and and the narrator realizes that he's hot wiring his his truck to start it like he's touching two <laughs> wires together <laughs> yeah i i just that there, there's a film I saw recently that reminded me so much of Carver, and I have I've never. It was based on stories by this Montana writer Maeve Malloy, who I've never read. Mm. But it's a movie called. It's three short films called Certain Women, by mm. Kelly Reinhardt, who's the writer director. But I recommend if if you love Carver and you know you're you're interested in seeing something quietly visual, you you should check out Certain Women. Certain women. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention in that story, Fever too. The the horror. I remember feeling this even even before I had kids, and then after I had kids, I felt it even more on this this time around. But his the first babysitter he gets is kind of a disaster, and oh, there's she's a great. part where <laughs> there's a part where he comes home and the kids come out, and I think he says. Uh, their clothes were dirty or something. And it's just this feeling of of helplessness that you have entrusted your kids to this person who was clearly irresponsible and it's affected them in this way that their their yeah. clothes are all dirty. And it's like, why are their clothes dirty? You know? I think I think he yeah, he, I think he says one of them was playing with a dog and that was not their dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, so I will be the teacher who piles on the homework, even though some other teacher has already assigned a uh, an assignment, and I'm going to ruin everyone's weekend by adding three more stories, uh-huh. which is Neighbors, uh, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, and Errand, which is Carver's last story and kind of the most different of all of his stories, but it's about a story about Chekhov's final days. Mm-hmm. And so... That'll give, uh, that's a good collection, I think, of six 
Um, oh, I would. Okay, then I'll, then I'll add vitamins because <laughs> the the Vietnam War vet. Yeah, is is just unforgettable in vitamins. <laughs> okay, so uh, that's a good seven. Okay, one a day for a week. <laughs> Not bad. Okay, so next question on my list. And I might skip over some of these questions because we've we've been covering a lot of these topics already and we're I don't know how yeah. we're doing on time, but I don't want to take up too much time. But uh, the next question on my list was, what does Carver do as well or better than anyone else? Is there anything that we haven't already said here? I was going to just say that I, th I think he does tragedy in mm -hmm. a very original way. Mm -hmm. It's never sensationalist when he when he does tragedy, um, when people die or people get sick. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's just one and just another thing that he does sort of effortlessly. Yeah. And you don't feel yeah. like you do with some readers where they they seem to want to grab you and, and force you to look at something and to say, look at this. This is what. This is what life is. This is what squalor really is. This is what tragedy is. You're you're living a, a sheltered, shallow life. Um, it's it's very natural and organic. You're reading about real people, and yet this this is what comes out. The sort of heartbreak. He's not afraid of heartbreak and tragedy. Every time there's like a money problem in a novel, I. I I, I don't know. It's just me, but I, I pass over it. I just think like, well, oh, yeah, but what's the real problem? And in his stories, the money problem is the real problem. Mm, but yeah, but it but it doesn't it doesn't feel like he's pulling on our heartstrings. Right. Right. It's yeah. like just a it's sort of like a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say the thing that I take from Carver the most is that feeling of life when you're not expecting to find it, sort of it, it, life or humanity comes through in a place that's maybe a little bit surprising, a little bit unexpected. And it reminded me of, of starting the stories reminds me of starting out on a trip mm -hmm. and maybe like a, a car ride at night that I used to take riding through small towns and you get out on the highway and it's dark and you're enjoying the the moon and it starts to get a little menacing because you're all alone and and then all of a sudden you see this this light up ahead and it's a tavern and you you pull in and there's four or five cars sitting there and you realize that there are people inside and there you just think people live here there's something going on in there they're angry or they're about to get in a fight or they're falling in love or they're escaping their problems way out here in this remote part of the country in this yeah. isolated area there's some real human activity in there and it mm -hmm. has a full range of emotions wherever you find these humans you'll find them and their problems and their their ups and their downs and their their successes and their tragedies. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking maybe, he, you know, what Carver is able to pull off is something that shows that, you know, you can get this only from literature. Mm. That mm -hmm. there's something about the way, because you can't see the entire scene at once, like in a film, um, and you have to take the words as they come. 
yeah. that he's able he's he's able to sort of like really hit you. Yeah. You know, you know, at, at his own at his own pace, you know. Yeah, it does feel like that when you're reading Carver that you're you're getting something that you couldn't get out of any other format, yeah. not from a not from a not quite from a painting, although some paintings kind of capture some of the same kinds of moods, but I know what you mean that you you don't read it and think, "Oh, the movie version of this would be amazing." You read yeah. it and think, "Boy, this is perfection." It's it would be hard to top the effect that he's getting out of this short story. And and you know, I've chased that feeling with other writers. I've I've felt like, "Okay, let me let, let me try to get what I get out of Carver out of this writer and it, it falls short or it's it's different, but it's not, you know, it, it, it's it's funny that I hold Carver as the standard in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we have uh, recommended some short stories and I want you to describe a perfect evening for someone who's reading Raymond Carver. Where would you be? What would you be doing, eating, drinking, etc.? All right, so I, I, I really enjoyed. It. I'm gonna. I enjoyed this question now. So, <laughs> I would be alone, of course, um, yeah. on the south side of Chicago, Ooh, or yeah. some kind of some kind of neighborhood like that. Yeah, um, and I would have to. I would be drinking in the afternoon. Okay. And the sunlight would be coming through the bar window, and <laughs> I'd be uh, drinking beer and having a steak for dinner. Because, because if you've ever ordered a steak <laughs> at a bar, yeah. you, you know it's, yep. there's like there's a particular type of steak you get at a bar. I don't know where yeah. they get this, but yeah, um, yeah, I, that. And then I would, you know, just be sitting there reading him. Yeah, I like when the steaks at the bar come on a silver. <laughs> you know have you had those <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those are great the steaks at a bar i think it's the same steak that you get if you're at a diner and you order steak and eggs oh uh, okay <laughs> you know it must there must be like a breakfast cut <laughs> oh that's great um i like the south side of chicago too that it's um I can picture the kinds of places that you're thinking of, and uh, they do seem just right for Raymond Carver. Late afternoon is good. I had a little bit of a different uh, vibe going. I was thinking that it would be a a, a day where you 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 worked hard during the day. Maybe you were maybe your job is manual labor, or maybe you were doing some yard work on kind of a brisk day and you come inside and you build a fire and then you sit in a comfortable chair under a lamp and maybe you have a little whiskey um mm. nothing too fancy maybe jack daniels or jim beam or something you put a little whiskey in a glass and you have that in one hand and you have the carver book in the other and mm -hmm. um it's either a quiet house or maybe you're playing mm. a little music i i think uh I would imagine that Carver would go nicely with uh, maybe a little Tom Petty. <laughs> <laughs> Playing very softly in the background. Or maybe a little 
Oh Brother Where Art Thou or that kind of uh, Americana soundtrack going on. I can't, I can't read to music anymore. I don't know when that started, but yeah, probably you know mid thirties. I just stopped reading to music. Yeah, even I think now I would maybe I could maybe pull it off listening to classical music, but even jazz yeah. I think might be too much. Yeah, let's skip ahead. I'm gonna go right to my catch-all question, which is, what else? should people know about Raymond Carver? What haven't we covered yet? Well, I, I have to get this story in because I'll be the first one to romanticize writers and drinking. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Raymond Carver was a notorious alcoholic and then he went sober and the the uh, the number of attempts he made to go sober is so sad and yeah. Once he went sober, he didn't touch a drink for the rest for the last decade of his life, and mm-hmm. um, so you know, I I respect the way he struggled and he eventually triumphed. Um, but but I do love the story with him and John Cheever at Iowa Writers Workshop. So I have to tell this story. So <laughs> he was at Iowa um, uh, at the same time as John Cheever, and John Cheever, who's a notorious alcoholic. In fact, yeah. I came across the funniest onion headline um about John Cheever and I I I just have to read it. It's how come no one celebrates my alcoholism like John Cheever's <laughs> <laughs> so, And weren't hey, Cheever and Carver weren't they flying in? There was one semester where Carver was he was he was commuting by plane to get to Iowa and he was I think it was to Iowa and it was he he talked them into uh he said he was going to write a story for the in-flight magazine or something and so they <laughs> they gave him a good deal on the tickets but oh I think he was God. he was flying in every Tuesday and flying home every Friday or something but yeah, yeah I mean, in the I, meantime he and Cheever were getting up to they were encouraging each other's uh uh libation habits yeah, so they they didn't they they didn't write at all. They they made um, runs to the liquor store twice a day, and um, uh, and Carver Carver said that Cheever was by far the worst. Like Cheever yeah. would wake him up, and they'd make a a, a run to the liquor store at ten a.m. Hmm. And um, as they drove there, as they neared the store and drove into the parking lot, Cheever would hop out even before the car stopped. Yeah. yeah. And, while Carver was parking, he'd go into the store, uh, liquor store, and Cheever would already be at the checkout with a gallon of rum. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it. Uh, it. Hearing the stories of Cheever's drinking, it reminds me of the stories of Dostoevsky's gambling, which I always found oh. really hard to read, where he's just in the grip of something that he. He knows what it's doing to him, and he knows he knows the consequences, and he cannot stop himself. And it's yeah, it's this uh, it's chilling to see someone with that kind of uh, brain and that kind of self awareness, nevertheless, give in to the weaknesses. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to tell my Raymond Carver story, which I love, and it's the. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a story that I can't remember who told the story. It was one of his friends said that they were in, uh, they were meeting up with Carver at some point, and Carver came walking down the street, and his hair was all messed up. And they described it as looking like he had just been attacked by a wild animal. And they said, you know, hey, Ray, is everything okay? And and he said, yeah, yeah, I just got a haircut. And they said, oh, well, what, you know, it looks a little funny. And he, Carver told them that he had gone to this barber who uh-huh. had had a stroke and was teaching himself how to cut hair with his left hand. <laughs> and it just done this crazy job on Carver's hair and it's such a beautiful story it's so fitting for Carver it's exactly the kind of person that Carver would would write about and identify with and and lead us to empathize with and um you know it's a kind of quirkiness you wouldn't find that kind of a scenario or you'd find it treated very differently in a story by Saul Bellow or Norman Mailer or, or Tony Morrison or something. But for Carver, it's, it, it just seems so uh, perfect that of course, if you're a barber and you have a stroke and you can't use your right hand, what else can you do? You know, <laughs> you don't have another profession. So you just turn the scissors around and start cutting hair with that hand. But um, you have to, you have to ask a lot of your customers that they're willing to spend their seven bucks or whatever it was on uh, to get that kind of <laughs> to get that kind of haircut, and that Carver would be willing to do it, you know, just without complaining. And then just he probably gave him a a nice little tip and went on his way. <laughs> okay, well, let's leave things there. And this was a fun one. I know people were really excited about this one. And we got a lot of emails when people heard it was coming up that that they couldn't wait for it. And and uh, I hope everyone has enjoyed it. He's definitely uh, an author that everybody should spend a little time with if they haven't so far. And he's worth revisiting if it's been a while since you've uh, taken a look at his short stories. Yeah. Mike, thanks for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. A lot of great episodes in the works this year, so sign up for the podcast and tell all your friends... You won't want to miss them, and you won't want them to miss them either. My thanks to Mike for joining me, as always, and to you, the listeners. I hope you are all having a wonderful new year. Let's close with a song that I'm sure Raymond Carver would have liked. Some lyrics he would have liked sung by two singers. I'm sure he would have liked Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks. Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. We 
That's the hardest thing 